Good morning. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 21. And just like we just sang in that song, what more can he say than to you he has said? God has spoken. And so let's hear his words to us from Acts chapter 21. And as you're still turning there, I do want to remind you that for the last several chapters, Paul has been showing us his heart that he wants to get to Jerusalem. That's his goal. And last week, earlier in chapter 21, Paul's friends were all telling him, don't go, Paul, it's going to go terrible. And in, in our passage today, Paul arrives in Jerusalem. It does go terrible, but God is in it. God's in it. So let's read Acts chapter 21, verses 17 through 36. So hear the words of God as revealed through Luke. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, <clears throat> Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are zealous for the law. <clears throat> and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourselves along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed... We have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been, and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. <clears throat> when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, and as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, 
away with him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us this word. We know that this word is living and active. I pray that it would pierce into our hearts this morning with your truth. We thank you that this word is breathed out by your spirit and it is profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. So I pray that you would teach us this morning and reprove us and correct us and train us. And I pray that you would lead our hearts to worship you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in deeper and deeper ways. Amen. If you were to look at my phone history for the last few weeks, you would see numerous text messages, emails, and phone calls between myself and Art Gash. And they're all about Acts chapter 21. There's some memes in there, there are, but mainly it's about Acts chapter 21. And that's because this chapter is difficult. It's a difficult chapter. We saw there's some tension in last week's passage, and there's tension in this week's passage. Acts 21 is filled with fascinating details, and it's filled with perplexing details. But this passage is complicated because life is complicated. The Bible, it isn't some ethereal pie-in-the-sky book that only talks about kind of heavenly things. No, the Bible talks about real people in real places and in real tough situations. It talks about real life, the same real life that you and I experience every day. So this passage is messy. But it's messy because... Life in a fallen world is messy. Life as finite and fallen human beings is messy. So I want to invite you into the mess, into Paul's mess that he gets himself into in this passage. And I want to ask you to invite chapter 21 into your mess, to let the word of God come and do its work in your life. So let's Let's wrestle together with this passage to see what God has for us, what God has for you today. So to start wrestling with this passage, we're going to ask a few questions, about three questions today. The first of which being, what's the situation? What is, what's going on here? There's a lot of details. There's a lot of things happening here. What's the context? What's going on? Well, we've already mentioned that Paul, he had his heart set on going to Jerusalem. The churches throughout the Roman Empire that Paul had, had planted, they had been gathering up this financial collection to help the impoverished Christians in Jerusalem. This is, in Paul's mind, you know, hoping to kind of heal some of those Divisions show the people in Jerusalem, look, the Gentiles are not trying to be, be better than you. They're not trying to kind of fill your place. They love you. They love you. And Paul was eager to deliver this collection. He wanted to see the Jewish and Gentile factions of the church come together in love. And he wanted to see his, his lost 
Jewish countrymen saved. He wanted them to come to faith in their true and long-expected Messiah. This plan seemed to be going well as Paul arrived in Jerusalem. Verse 17 says, When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. There was a warm reception. Now, Luke doesn't mention the collection yet at this point. He will later in chapter 24. And Paul mentions it all throughout his letters. Very important to him. So what would have happened here is is Paul would have been arriving in Jerusalem with bags and bags of money. This is a dramatic scene. They didn't have Venmo. They didn't have Apple Pay. They They couldn't wire money into the Jerusalem bank's uh, bank account. Um, this would have been dramatic. It would have been like Ed McMahon coming in with one of those big checks, you know? So they received them gladly. First day in Jerusalem, so far, so good. On the second day, Paul meets up with James and the elders of the Jerusalem church. And this is James the half-brother of Jesus. He's the leader of the Jerusalem church. And in this meeting, Paul goes over one by one all the things that the Lord has been doing through him out among the Gentiles. So all that has happened in Philippi and Thessalonica and Corinth and Ephesus, all these events that we've been learning about and reading about over the last few months, he's recounting these. And when James and the elders heard it, they glorified God. They were praising God for this redemptive work he was doing among all the nations. But it's at this point, in verse 20 and following, that things seem to shift. The mood and and the tone of this meeting takes an unexpected turn. Look at it with me. Verse 20, when they heard it, so Paul going one by one, through all these things that have happened. When they heard it, they glorified God and they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are zealous for the law and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you've come. James says, in effect, that's great. That's awesome what God is doing among the nations. But you know, he's saving the Jews too. Thousands of them. And Paul, they don't like you. They don't like you very much at all. Your approval rating in Jerusalem is dangerously low, Paul. These Jewish converts to Christ, they... They see you as a controversial, provocative firebrand, and they are not nearly excited about your visit as you are. You can just feel the air get sucked out of the room at this point. Paul, he had put all of his eggs in this basket, this this collection, trying to unify the church, and that basket was looking pretty flimsy right about now. Have you had those moments where you're so excited about something? You have such high expectations. Then you go and share it with someone. They don't care at all. They blow you off. 
This would have been devastatingly disappointing to Paul. And it's because of these Christians who converted from Judaism and they were still zealous for the law. They had converted to Christ, but they hadn't made a clean break with the law of Moses. They had heard some half-truths about Paul and they didn't like it. And so if the Jerusalem church was a powder keg, Paul was a match. This was a disaster waiting to happen. So let's ask the next, the next question. How do they respond? How do they respond? Because in, in these verses, Paul or James lets Paul in on this problem and he proposes a solution. Let's look at that. Look at verse 23. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. And then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and he went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. So, again, this problem here is there are Jewish Christians who think that Paul is teaching against the law of Moses, telling Jews that they don't need to follow the law, they don't need to circumcise their children, they don't need to walk according to the customs, Literally, they say that Paul is promoting apostasy from Moses. That's what the word forsake in verse 21, that's literally apostasy. So they are accusing Paul of making Jewish apostates from Moses. Now, they're strangely silent on all the converts to Christ among the Gentiles, but this is their focus. James lays out a plan, and it does seem like this is a preconceived plan by James and the elders. It's kind of a way to protect Paul's public image. It's like a PR campaign for the Apostle Paul. And it, it might be a plan to protect Paul's life. Okay, Jerusalem as a city at this point, it is marked by uh, political upheaval and social unrest. And uh, it was actually filled with assassins. And these assassins were Jewish assassins, and they would target Romans, and they would target Jews who were friendly with Romans. Paul was a well-known Jew planting these churches filled with Gentiles all throughout the Roman Empire. He would have been the number one target on their hit list. So they may have real good motivations here for coming up with this plan just to protect Paul. But James says they have these four men who are under a vow, undoubtedly a Nazarite vow. We'll talk about that later. And he suggests that Paul should pay for the expenses that go along with ending that vow. It's a very expensive process. And that Paul should participate with them by going through a ritual purification in the temple. Now, I'm going to explain this in a moment. I know Nazarite vow, ritual purification, what are you talking about? We're going to talk about it. But James's point is that, okay, Paul, if, if you go along with this, everyone will know you're not such a bad guy. 
You're, you're totally fine with the law of Moses. You're a good Jew. It'll calm things down. It's a problem solved, right? Well, not really. I mean, I don't know about you, but at this point, I'm expecting Paul to go off on these guys. I'm expecting him to just lose it, right? Give one of those great Paul statements, by no means, may it never be, God forbid, right? That's what I'm expecting from Paul, but that's, that is not what happens. Not at all. Now, we don't want to be backseat drivers 2,000 years later telling Paul how wrong he was and how he should have done this. That's not what we want to do. Paul was in a tough, an excruciatingly tough situation here. He was under a lot of pressure. And it does seem like James kind of buffered this plan a little bit. He knows Paul. And so he says, you know, I'm not talking about Gentiles here. I'm just talking about Jews. Our decision from the Jerusalem council still stands. That's verse 25. But even still, Paul agrees to go along with James's plan. And that's shocking to me. Now, it may not shock you right away, but I want to show you why this is so shocking and startling to me. Remember last week that Art mentioned how we tend to put Paul on a pedestal that we don't do with any of the other apostles. We don't do it with Peter. We don't do it with John. So yes, when those men were writing sacred scripture, they wrote with Holy Spirit-guided infallibility and perfection. Their words were the very words of God in those moments. But in their day-to-day lives, they were fallible and imperfect people, just like us. And in this passage, in the heat of a really tense moment, I think Paul was on the verge of making a serious mistake. When James tells Paul to purify himself in the temple along with these four Nazarites, Red flags should be going up in our minds. And this is why we need to read the Old Testament. If you don't know the Old Testament, you will not understand a passage like this. You'll have no clue what's going on. So to go back to the Old Testament, in Numbers chapter 6, God through Moses gave the law concerning Nazarite vows. This vow was marked by avoiding wine, not touching dead bodies, not cutting your hair, which is why it mentions they can shave their heads. That's how we know it's a Nazarite vow. So this was a vow that a Jew could take if they wanted to spend a certain kind of temporary focused time in just devotion and intense separation unto God. So in terms of these Jewish converts who were zealous for the law, these would be the most zealous. These would be the most extreme. But it's what happens at the end of the vow. The very thing that Paul was about to fund and be involved in, that should interest us. Listen to this. This is Numbers chapter 6, verses 13 to 14. And this is the law for the Nazarite. When the time of his separation has been completed, he should be brought to the entrance of the tent of meeting, or later the temple, And he shall bring his gift to the Lord, one male lamb a year old without blemish for a burnt offering, and one ewe lamb a year old without blemish as a sin offering, and one ram without blemish as a peace offering. In other words, Paul is about to go back to the old covenant sacrificial system. 
to do this plan. Paul is about to go back to the Levitical rituals of animal sacrifice. Now, you might still think, well, that's not really a problem, right? It's just an example of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians. To the Jew, I became as a Jew that I might win Jews. I mean, earlier, Paul, he refused to circumcise Titus because he was a Greek. But he did circumcise Timothy, who was half Jewish, to aid him in his mission to the Jews in the synagogues. Isn't that the same thing? Isn't Paul just going along with this plan to open up gospel opportunities in Jerusalem? Perhaps. Perhaps. But it is really hard to square that with the message of the book of Hebrews. It's really hard. The author to the Hebrews goes to great lengths to say, don't go back. Don't go back to the old covenant. Don't go back to the temple. Don't go back to Moses. Don't go back to those animal sacrifices. Christ has come. He has fulfilled it all. Don't go back. For instance, listen to this paragraph from Hebrews chapter 10. The whole chapter is about this, but just this short paragraph. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Hebrews is telling us the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. Christ has sacrificed himself for sin once for all. We don't need any more sacrifices. So do you see the problem? This wasn't going to open up opportunities for the gospel. It was going to obscure the gospel. Possibly even distort the gospel. And let me show you how this would have looked on the ground. So, now, Paul ended up not going through with the sacrifice. We'll talk about that in a moment. But had he done it, this is what it would have looked like. To bring just one of those sacrifices, there was three mentioned. But the first one, a burnt offering or a whole burnt sacrifice, what this would have looked like is the worshiper, in this case Paul, would take a lamb and take it into the temple. He would put his hand on the head of the lamb, symbolically transferring his sin from himself to this substitute, to the animal. Many people think confessing their sins over that animal. And then he would take a knife, slit the lamb's throat, and it would shed his blood for Paul. Remember one of Paul's great motivations for going to Jerusalem. It was to evangelize the Jews. He wanted them to hear the message of Christ, that Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. It is finished once for all. But Paul's actions would completely undermine his message. It would completely compromise the message he so deeply loved. Think about his other motivation. He wanted to unify the church. He wanted to bring Jew and Gentile together, living in the 
unity that Christ had bought for them. That was his great desire, a good desire. But think about what happened when Paul went into the temple. Now, the temple, it had this dividing wall. And on the outside was the court of the Gentiles. That's as far as a Gentile, a non-Jew, could go. And beyond that, Jews could enter and they could go into like the temple proper, but Gentiles had to stay out. And there was this wall, it was a short wall about waist high. And at intervals along that wall was a warning engraved that said to the effect, if you're a Gentile and you go past this wall, you enter at the risk of your own ensuing death. You take responsibility for what's about to happen to you. It was a stark warning. Now, Paul, the reason this mob forms against him is a false witness that he brought this this character, Trophimus the Ephesian, a Gentile, into the temple. Now, that wasn't true. It was slander. But even so, think about it. Paul would have been there in the court of the Gentiles with his brother in Christ, Trophimus, and then he would have left him behind. And he would have stepped past that dividing wall. And I could just imagine Paul looking back and making eye contact with his beloved brother, Trophimus, and this dividing wall between them, threatening his death. Is that a picture of unity between Jew and Gentile? It's not. So Paul had these good desires. And again, in a really tough situation, Paul was about to make a decision that would undermine those good motivations. Now, I want you to hear this from Ephesians chapter 2. Because Paul's going to write the letter to the Ephesians while he's in prison. And he gets imprisoned in our passage this morning. So he, he hasn't written it yet. And he writes this to the Ephesians. Trophimus the Ephesian would have been among that congregation. I just wonder if he had this event in mind as he wrote this. Listen to this. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That dividing wall has been broken down. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, and that includes the sacrifices, <laughs> that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, no longer Jew and Gentile, but one new people in Christ. So making peace. So though Paul had the best of intentions, he wanted to make disciples, he wanted to bring harmony among God's people, his decision was about to put both of those in danger. So if, if Paul goes through with James's plan, he kind of saves face in Jerusalem and he, uh, he kind of makes peace there, but he undermines his deepest convictions. If he declines, the rift between the Jewish and the Gentile Christians will only grow worse and Paul will undoubtedly be rejected in Jerusalem. It is a lose-lose situation. Paul was between a rock and a hard place And in that tension, he was about to make a decision that would compromise the gospel message. Like I said, this passage is complicated and messy because life is complicated and messy. And yes, the Apostle Paul, 
He was a great man of God. He's one of my personal heroes. We all love Paul. So was James. He was known as James the Just, as camel knees, because he prayed so much. His knees were calloused. But they were still regular people. People with flaws and shortcomings. People who made mistakes and blunders just like us. And that should be comforting to us. Paul, he wasn't some super Christian who lived a life that we could never possibly hope to attain. No, he was a redeemed rebel, just like us. He was a sinner who, by God's grace, was also a saint, just like us. We've all had times where we proclaimed biblical truth with our lips and we believed it, but we denied it by our lives. We've all done it. We've all had those low moments where instead of our lives adorning and beautifying the gospel, we've actually vandalized and defaced the gospel through our hypocrisy. Let me show you an illustration of this. It's a rough picture, isn't it? That image turns my stomach. It's horrific. It's reprehensible. But why? Why do we have such a visceral reaction to seeing that image? It's because their life doesn't match their doctrine. Their life doesn't match the truth that they're proclaiming. So is the doctrine in this picture true? It it is. Jesus saves. That's true. Does their life, does their actions match that glorious doctrine? Not in the least. Not in the least. This doesn't bring glory and honor to the name of Jesus. It brings shame and reproach. But the reality is, we are more like this image than we care to admit. It is easy to judge these people. It's easy to judge some clansmen in hoods. It's hard to examine ourselves, honestly. It's much harder to be honest with ourselves. But think about it. When we treat our spouses like servants or slaves who should meet our every selfish desire... We compromise the truth that Christ died and sacrificed himself for his bride and that the church should submit to Christ as a husband. When we lash out in anger at our kids, we compromise the truth that God is a compassionate father. When we slander and gossip behind each other's backs, we compromise the truth that God made that person in his very own dignified image. When we look at porn, or we run to the brothel of our minds, we compromise the truth that God is holy, holy, holy. When we live in constant fear and anxiety about the future, we compromise the truth that God is altogether good. We can talk a big talk about Jesus on Sunday and then compromise that truth with countless selfish decisions throughout the week. And the decision of James and Paul I think it was about to compromise the gospel. But our actions have done the same time and time again. So what should Paul have done? I mean, it's hard to look back and say, 
Right? Again, we don't want to be backseat drivers telling Paul what to do. But maybe, maybe Paul should have actually addressed the half-truth that he was forsaking the law of Moses. He could have said, no, the law isn't forsaken. It's fulfilled. Fulfilled in Jesus. The law was just a shadow of the good things to come. And it has faded away in the light of Christ, the Messiah. Maybe he should have pushed back and asked why these men were so zealous for the law in the first place. Shouldn't they be zealous for Jesus, not Moses? Didn't Jesus say, Moses testified about me? Shouldn't they be passionate about the gospel more than the law? He could have asked them, why is your Jewish identity or your national identity or your ethnic identity so much more important to you than your Christian identity as being in Christ? That's a, that's a problem. Or perhaps James, he should have put a stop to those whispers, that the gossip and the slander, as soon as it popped up and not let it kind of fester under the surface and become such a big problem as it did. <laughs> so we can ask, what if? about Paul's compromise. And we can ask what if about all of our past compromises, but at the end of the day, we're all compromised. We're all compromisers. Every one of us. So is there any hope? Is there any hope? Yes, there is. Of course there is. And it doesn't come from putting your head on an animal and sacrificing it, or from any other sacrifice we can make. It doesn't come from going into a temple or a holy place or doing all these things. That's not where our hope comes from. Now, this is Jesus' book. Paul is in Jesus' story, and so are you. This is Jesus' world. And Jesus, in his grace and in his mercy, can salvage the most hopeless and broken situations. So let's ask the final question. What was the outcome? Let's read starting at verse 27. <laughs> when the seven days were almost completed, so Paul was almost about to go in and make these sacrifices, the Jews from Asia, probably from Ephesus, they knew Paul, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone, everywhere, that, that's some hyperbole, against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. They were shut to keep any other Gentiles from possibly coming in. And as they were seeking to kill him, Word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion, and he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. And then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowds were shouting one thing and some another. And as he could not learn the facts, that sounds like 2021. <laughs> one, thing, one person said one thing, one another. So, but he couldn't learn the facts, so he ordered him to be brought to the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. So what was the outcome? What was the result? 
Well, for Paul, this is pretty normal. A mob, a riot, an arrest. This is just a normal Tuesday in the life of Paul the Apostle. So the, the crowd was stirred up. In their frenzy, they were even trying to kill Paul. And then the Romans came and arrested him for his own good, to protect him and to save his life. And in the background of all this chaos, all this mess, God was orchestrating his sovereign purpose. Through this mob, God stopped Paul from compromising the gospel message at the last second. You see, compromise never works. It never works. If we try to soften the rough edges of the gospel to make it more palatable, it doesn't work. It's never enough. It only leads to deeper and deeper levels of compromise. We might try to water down the Bible's teaching on life in the womb or sexuality or gender, trying to reach our, our secular neighbors. Or we might try to downplay the deity of Christ or the doctrine of the Trinity for our Muslim or Mormon or Jehovah's Witness neighbors. We can try to keep silent on subjects like hell and judgment and God's wrath to try not to step on people's toes, not to offend modern sensibilities. But one compromise always leads to another and another and another. Paul tried his hardest to pacify the Jews, but the outrage mob was committed to silencing him no matter what. In our lingo, they were committed on canceling Paul. So yes, the mob slandered Paul and lied against Paul and beat him and tried to kill him. But in all of this, God was providentially protecting Paul from making a decision he would later regret. And he was protecting the gospel of his beloved son from being diminished of one ounce of its glory. So here's the truth I want to leave you with today. Jesus will spread his gospel even through human failure. Jesus will spread his gospel even through human failure. That's encouraging. That's really encouraging. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? I mean, believe that in your bones. Believe it in the midst of failure. I wonder if Paul himself even believed it as he was being put in handcuffs by the Romans. But it was true. And Jesus would prove it over and over again in Paul's life. Because of his arrest, Paul will have the opportunity to preach the gospel in front of kings and governors and magistrates. In prison, he's going to write the letters to the Philippians and the Ephesians and the Colossians and to Philemon. Paul is even going to lead some of Caesar's own household to confess that Jesus, not Caesar, is Lord. What? It's amazing. Jesus is the hero of this story. Paul isn't the hero. You're not the hero. I am certainly not the hero. Jesus is, and he will spread his gospel even through human failure, even through your failure. Even through your failure. If you feel like you've messed up one too many times, if you feel compromised and hypocritical, if you feel like you just can't seem to get your act together, 
If you feel like you've really blown it this time, that this must be the last straw, if you feel like a disappointment in the eyes of God, I have good news for you. I have really good news for you. Jesus is the Redeemer, and he specializes in redeeming compromisers and phonies and hypocrites and failures. You are his specialty. Jesus died for compromisers. He shed his blood to wash away your sin and your hypocrisy. You don't need any other sacrifices. None that you could make would ever be enough. Jesus put away sin once for all by the sacrifice of himself. Your sin is as far away from you as the east is from the west. Your sin has been cast into the depths of the sea. Your sin has been trampled under foot. And it's been forgiven, and Jesus remembers it no more. And this is the beautiful reality. Jesus wants to forgive you and restore you. Jesus wants to forgive your sin and restore your life to you. He wants you to find peace through the gospel and he wants to use you to spread his gospel even through your failure. Think about it. Paul's compromise couldn't stop the gospel. James's poor leadership couldn't stop the gospel. The Jewish Christians' zeal for the law couldn't stop the gospel. The mob in the temple couldn't stop the gospel. The Roman prison couldn't stop the gospel. And you, in all of your failures, in all of your deficiencies, cannot and will not stop the gospel from going forth in triumph. Jesus can and will restore you to his service. But note, he might bring you to rock bottom to do so. Paul experienced a mob, a riot, a prison cell. But Jesus had him right where he wanted him. And he used him in amazing ways. Jesus takes screw-ups and deadbeats who are at the end of their tether. And he uses them to advance his conquering kingdom. And the good news is that's all of us. That's every single one of us. We can all get in on this. There's hope for you. In Jesus, there is real, firm, solid, lasting, eternal hope for you. Because Jesus will spread his gospel. Even through human failure, even through your failure. Our Lord said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. If the gates of hell won't, do you think your failure will? No, Jesus will spread his gospel even through your worst failure. And that's really good news. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your grace and mercy. For the grace that overflows and abounds toward sinners. We thank you for forgiving all of our sins, for redeeming our lives from the pit, for crowning our life with steadfast love and kindness. We thank you that you are merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love.
Pray that you would minister to our hearts now, that you would make the gospel more real to us now. Pray that you would lead us in worship. Of your great name now. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.